You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 4 of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to Guigo II and his book, The Ladder of Monks. And in today's session, I'll be dialoguing with Jim about his second episode, where he turned to Guigo for guidance last week. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you. Yes. Glad to be back together again like this. That episode. Wow. Beautiful. Just so lovely. So beautiful. Listened to it a number of times. So I'm excited to have the dialogue. I was going to begin by stepping back and just seeing if I'm in the flow of Guigo, witnessing him doing two, two things. One is he's talking about a method of prayer that can open a person to God's presence, but then he's also teaching us about trying to share the experience of each piece of this method in a way, and the experience of how God, we might experience God in the method. Is that, yes. is that right? Yes, this is my sense of it, or a way that helps me to see it. Let's say that Guigo begins by assuming that we know by faith that God is present within us, all around us, closer to us than we are to ourselves, and we're reassured by that, and so on. And then what we're looking for is how to experience the presence of God that our faith tells us we know is there. And this is in the realm of prayer. So that in the realm of prayer, he, and he starts at the beginning. He says, where we begin, let's, we begin at the beginning. And we sit in a kind of a sincere stance, a receptive openness to God, which is the thing of Alexio Divina. And so we open the scriptures or open Guigo, whatever text speaks to us. And so the text I chose, I believe, at the beginning was where Jesus says, Fear not, I'm with you always. So at the beginning, what we do is we listen to that. And we take it to heart in devotional sincerity. If the deathless presence of Jesus is personally telling us not to be afraid because he's with us. And he calls that the first rung of the ladder to heaven. So Lexio is a, is a grace state of consciousness. But it's a grace state of consciousness that's a gift to even want to do it or to be able to do it. But we have to choose to do it. Unless we choose to set a time for a rendezvous with God, there's no time for a rendezvous with God. We have to freely choose to be there for God like that. And then the same way within that leads to meditation, a loving exchange with God. We might journal, whatever is like a loving dialogue back and forth, like reason illumined by faith. But again, it's the grace to give ourselves to that, to receive that. But we have to freely choose to cooperate with it. There's like an active participation in this passive, this gift of grace that's received. And as the Lexio uh, stabilizes and the meditation stabilizes, it leads to the heart center of desire, of prayer, like, help me with this. I can't experience your oneness with me without you helping me. So all those three phases are consistent with our life on this earth in which we experience God's presence with us as in a mirror darkly or through a veil. So it's efficacious unto holiness, it's real, it's important. And uh, by being faithful to that daily rendezvous, it can soak into us and become habitual. We carry it out throughout the day. That's the first three steps. But when he gets to contemplation, and this is this critical turning point in, in which... Uh, in the, for these mystics, is what point does it start to become mystical? Mm. Mystical meaning that uh, it isn't us experiencing and responding to God's presence mediated through our understanding, through our consolations, through our aspirations, but rather there's, there's there's a deepening of a longing, our finite longing for an infinite union. And because our longings are finite, they can't consummate an infinite longing. And therefore, God consummates it to pass, infuse contemplation 
And so he says, mid-sentence, God, there's a border crossing. God crosses over in a kind of an ecstatic sense of unexplainably, it's just God in all directions, like the wonder of it, like the touch. So what he's doing in the latter, he's trying to say, how to discern this is happening to us? Because although sometimes there's extraordinary things that can happen with this, like inner voices and visions and all those things can, sometimes they do happen. But really saying, actually, it's extremely subtle. We're trying to calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale to discern a certain oneness that may spill over into feelings, but it's deeper than feelings. It may spill over into insights, but it's deeper than insights. And what it is, it's a foretaste of heaven. When we pass through the veil of death into infinite union with the infinity of God, not in the fullness of glory, but in an obscure and hidden way, there's something celestial about this. And so he's trying to help us to just understand this and to discern, look for the signs that it's happening to us mm-hmm. and how to cooperate with it, how mm-hmm. to freely move with the flow of what's happening to us. And I think that's what's going on here yeah. in this section. That's really helpful, Jim. Just digging into that that idea of calibrating our hearts to this this scale, would these mystics, or Guigo in particular, would he be saying that part of how you learn to calibrate your heart is to engage in those first three rungs on a regular basis? I think Guigo would say, and I think all the mystics would say this, you know, sometimes people are granted this oneness without the three rungs. And it comes in different ways. Sometimes I talk to people, it comes in near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. It, it can come in the middle of a thunderstorm. It can come, it's just like all of a sudden it overtakes you like this. You didn't even know it existed. That does happen. That does happen. And then you're left with what to do about that. So what Guigo is saying, it's important to build the foundations of spiritual psychological maturity mm-hmm. that opens up and leads to this and supports it. Because unless we first stabilize in Luxio, stabilize in meditation, this, this reflective dialogue and this, this longing, there won't be the foundations to support the touch. You know what I mean? And therefore, we're building broad-based foundations of patience, humility, openness, trust, and so on, so that when this passive event happens, this grace event happens, there's like a stabilized, broad-based, uh, like our, our awakening heart. Mm-hmm. Can sustain yes. it, yeah. And just reflecting on the, the previous mystics you've taught us about, they also had an assumption that there was a, a daily foundational practice, reading scripture, prayer. Yes. Yes, I, I think that the Guigo is very similar to Teresa. And as you recall, those, in the, when we went through the interior castle, she starts from the beginning like Guigo does in the first mansion. In the first mansion are the very first stages where God becomes personally real to you. God's presence becomes meaningful to you. And she goes on. And then the third mansion is psychological spiritual maturity. See, we stabilize at that. And then she says it's in that stabilized maturity, the fourth mansion, where she's, you realize you're sitting there in prayer and you realize that your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. That's really, and also there's an influx of God coming not from somewhere far off, but from some hidden place inside of you, and it's flowing into you without your effort, and that's the beginning. See of how this starts from the fourth on to the seventh. Mm-hmm. The other mystics so far we've been looking at, they don't necessarily. Merton also starts at the beginning, I would say, in his own way. Mm-hmm. turning to see a flock of birds descending and so on. But John of the Cross, he, he, very briefly, but he assumes it. Mm-hmm. So he said, how can we be one with Christ if we don't understand Christ? How can we understand Christ if we don't study his life and listen to his words and how important that is to do that? He just So he kind of assumes we're doing that. But then he says, what happens in the midst of that growth, 
You go for your rendezvous with God and God doesn't show up for the rendezvous, see, the dark night. So God weans us off our dependency on the finite ways of experiencing the infinite presence of God. And if we don't panic and run away and just stay there, there can begin to grow in us a night lovelier than the dawn. Mm-hmm. Like that. But the, the, they all assume that the cloud, later when we look at the cloud of unknowing, we'll see how he mm-hmm. does this all too, how, how important this is to, to develop internal foundations to support this quickening. Like that. And it's back to what you were saying at the beginning of this session about that active participation, that, that saying yes to God. These are, these are the ways we, we participate with God uh, in our finite lives. Exactly. And then what we're, I think another way of looking at what's happening here with contemplation is that God uh, makes a move on us mm-hmm. with God's infinite yes to us that utterly precedes and transcends our yes. See? Because yeah. it's an infinite, yet you are my beloved. You know, you are the, you're the thou. And, uh, and that's what happens. I really think the rains fall from our hands. It's just God overtaking us with how God freely chooses to be overtaken by how precious we are in God's eyes. It's the one God chooses to give himself, to give herself to. And that's what's so startling about it. But again, it's so subtle. The reflective consciousness, it can tell something is happening, but it can't, because it's finite, it's beyond itself. You know, it has Mm -hmm. to patiently learn a new way to be present to God who's present to us in this new way that's disorienting at first because we're not used to it. Mm-hmm. You talk about longing as a really critical piece of this. It seems to initiate this path, but then it also continues to be an engine for our commitment to the path. Can you speak a bit more about the, the sense of longing? Yes. You know what I... Share too, I think it's important that um, in, the, in the, the first three rungs of the ladder, Lexio, meditation, and prayer, there are contemplative dimensions of each of those rungs. So as we're listening to Jesus or God, whoever the, whatever the word of God comes to us is, we quite naturally pause to, quote, contemplate the words, like we rest wordlessly in the words and we go into it again. Mm-hmm. And same way with meditation. We're in this dialogue with God, this reflective process, and then we pause to contemplate or rest in the insight or the clarity. And the same with prayer in our longing. We contemplate this sweet longing, this kind of how mysterious it is to us. Mm-hmm. And there's also dimensions where this mystical rains down into us. Well, we sense in the Lexio a certain oneness that's utterly beyond what we could begin to find words for. See? And the same with the meditation. It's a discursive reflection. It has an obscure quickening of an understanding beyond conceptualization. And same with the longing. It's an unexplainable longing for an unexplainable union. So it rains down into in this present. But what Guigo's talking about is that when we die and pass through the veil of death, it won't be like this. When we cross through the veil into the light of glory, it'll be uh, an infinite union with the infinity of God in the full light of glory as destiny. Mm -hmm. And he's Mm -hmm. saying in contemplation, that starts to happen to us now. Yes. See, this is what's so mysterious about it that we... Mm -hmm. And so I say, well, he experiences as a hermit. You know I mean? He was... Like this. So it comes to us in our vocation. So I, what I say is, first of all, is that uh, we can experience this in married love or in being a mother or a father or in teaching a classroom of students where we can see it in the poet or the, or the artist, the musician. We can see it in solitude or in the midst of nature. And what it is really is that um, we're drawn by love. I'll take married love as an example. It could also be solitude or art or the art, anything. We're, we're drawn to something to give ourselves to it. 
And as we give ourselves to it, we commit ourselves to the discipline to internalize the skills with the facility to stabilize in it. So the artist has to learn the ways of art, the poet, the ways that there's an effort. But then there's a certain moment in the effort, in the learning, where the fire that you sensed in the poet's voice that inspired you, you feel that fire within yourself and a poem comes out. See? Mm. And once the poem comes out and you've tasted it, like here it's inside of you, then the craft leans itself into the art of surrendering in a stance of waiting for the flow that you can't make happen. Mm-hmm. You can't make it happen. But even though you can't make it happen in the waiting, it happens anyway. But if you wouldn't faithfully wait, it wouldn't happen. So there's this delicate bond. So I think this is true with the mystical dimensions of being a mother or a father, or being a, a, a spouse, or being widowed, or a solitude, or nature. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of a realm in which we were quickened and taken to the deeper place. And then once we were quickened to the deeper place and we taste it, then having tasted it, see, then there's the longing to abide in it. But we're powerless to abide. See? And therefore there is the longing of prayer prior to the mystical awakening. You know, help me, help me, help me. There's the quickening where it's unexpectedly fulfilled. But then when it dissipates, there's the deepening of a longing. Because now, see, having tasted the more, meaning not more of this, but more of what's infinitely more than the sum total of all of this that came washing over you, now that you were granted that, then the longing becomes a mystical longing to stay open to that. And And this is where we start getting at this idea of a path which we'll yes. focus on in the next session, actually. Let's see, but the first beginnings is right here. This is where we ended the session, really. A certain sweet longing that mm-hmm. we can't consummate. And Jim, when you... Yeah, oh, go on, that's it. When, when you talk about those other examples like poetry and marriage and parenting, does, does prayer and um, this kind of rendezvous specifically to uh, be open to God's presence. Is that, is that something unique that you would guide people to, to begin if they haven't? Or, or is it, if it's poetry for me, I'm, my, rendezvous, my rendezvous is with poetry. It's with... Yeah, yes, I, I would say this. This is a subtle point, really. I would say, let's say we're listening to an interview, say with Mary Oliver, for example, or say you read T.S. Eliot like a poet. There's a certain sense where you're in the presence of this kind of transformed poet. You're in the presence of a holy person. And I also think this is especially true if it has moved over into an include the moral imperative. It has prompts them to loving compassion, see, into humility and so on. And then I would say, I'm calling the infinity of the gift, I call it God. But this mystical poet might not call it God. He or she might say, I don't identify with me. But you can tell when they speak a poet or they read the poetry, it's incarnate infinity, you know, the rhythms of it. Same with the artist. There are certain artists that you can, like visual mystics, you could tell that they're giving themselves over to, to God, to the infinity, given to them as the mode of aesthetic beauty like Chagall's painting of the angels and these artists and see. So that's how I see it. So he's seeing it where the, where in religious faith, where the infinity of it is explicated. That it's explicit as infinite, infinitely giving itself as art, as poetry, as the body, as time, as life. That's how I see it. That's helpful. That's helpful. So this practice, uh, Guigo's teaching us is not necessary, but it's helpful. I would say this. Let's say for each of us we go along, and unexpectedly there's a certain realm of life, nature, solitude, parenting, aloneness, art. 
And for whatever reason, there's a certain predisposition for empathic resonance of a light that shines through that. And then there's also the grace of being radically faithful to go deeper, 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 deeper like that. And then the fruit of those modalities, the one where you, you, the person deeply lives it and deeply is it, see, then uh, I think that's holiness, see, that that's God. See. And so Christ consciousness religion is, is a mode of God, but it's a mode of God explicated as God. As mm-hmm. if it, there's a lovely little scene where uh, Thomas Merton, when he was at the monastery, there's a scene of him sitting in the garden of Gethsemane under this big tree. And he's, he's with a... Um, a ballet dancer from New York, uh, who came because he read Merton's Seven Story Mountain. He was so moved by it. Where the ballet dancer said he was an atheist. And when he attended the mass in the church with the monks, he said, this whole mass thing, I don't get it. You know, like, mm-hmm. what's, what's going on? And he said, you know what the mass is? He said, it's ballet. You know, it's a dance. And right away, the ballet got it because he knew the ecstasy of the dance. He knew, and Merton was so good at that, as meeting each person and meeting them in their language for what's unspeakably precious that calls them to be unexplainably faithful to it. And so we're all trying to find that and be endlessly open for whatever more might come our way or whatever God has in mind. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. It is interesting too that the the mystics that when this happens to them they they come come out of it with very different ways of approaching the explanation. I did want to read this quote from Guigo cuz it kind of spoke to that for me. He says this is page 75. Why do we try to express in everyday language affections that no language can describe? Those who have not known such things do not understand them, for they could learn them more clearly of them only from the book of experience, where God's grace itself is the teacher. Yeah, that's a big one. And then and the next talk after this, I'm going to focus on that also. Because, see, he's yes. using words. Yes. And we're reading his words. Yes. So we're in the realm of words. So it, go, it goes like this. These are some ways that I see it. Let's say we could go to Guigo for uh, spiritual direction. And he would listen and meet us where we were see, in our Lexio like that. And he would encourage us and so on. But as a mystic, he would be interiorly listening for something. And what he would be listening for is hearing you struggling to find words for something that's beyond words. And because he himself was established in the presence beyond words, he would see in your words the the residences of the birthing of what he's talking about. Likewise, you can be quickened by this yourself and go for spiritual direction. And maybe the director you go to is very good at at, um, common sense, you know, is very good at the scriptures and faith and how is God present in your life. It means a lot. But if you're quickened by this, and you try to mention it to the director, you can tell they don't know what you're talking about because it wasn't given to them. See? But you can also, this is what I think contemplative spiritual direction is, is two people sitting in a room sharing with each other but what neither one can say. But they recognize in the tonal pattern of their words, see, the intimacy of this awakening. Like that. That's how I see it, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yes, it yeah. does. And so he's going, so he's almost going, it's like Thomas Aquinas, you know, at the end of his life, he had this mystical experience. And he said, based on what I saw, the Summa Theologica is like straw, you know, like burn it. <laughs> and Gil Joson says, of that straw, Europe was to make its bed. But Aquinas was a mystic also. So there's a certain kind of words that explain things and define things, and they're important. But there's another kind of word that comes out of a heart awakened by the unsayable. And so it cries out. And this is why I say, too, I think these are the words of lovers. 
the words of poets, the words of, and so you can, insofar as you're grounded in its in it yourself, you can recognize in their words that they're talking about something that your heart has tasted, mm. such as the quote you just read to me. See? Yes. And the reason it kind of strikes you, it bears witness that your own heart reverberates with what he's alluding to. Mm-hmm. And then that's that's Guigo guiding us. See, that's where we find in him somebody who reassures us. And, and Jim, back to that sense of longing, does that help us tap into our that that sense of longing, which is our guide for this path? You know, that it, it, when we hear the words where yes, yes. we long to, to know it more clearly to Yes it yeah. is. And that's why he says in the same talk I go over this thing where he goes, What are the signs? to know this is mm-hmm. happening to you. Yes. And one of the signs is the mysterious cessation of longing. Like all of a sudden, the restless longings of your heart kind of serendipitously fall into kind of a homecoming in which nothing's missing. You know, it's like I, I belong here, like your center of gravity is in this divinity. And, it's a, and that's, really, that's, that's really the thing, it's a strange, feeling that uh, there's no longing because nothing's missing. Yes, Overflowing in all directions. And uh, it's so disarmingly subtle. You have to quietly sit with it and take it in like that. Yeah. Mm. So I did want to turn to the way Guigo starts to describe, you know, this contemplative uh, when God God steps in (laughs) and... uh, he, he uses scriptures, uh, verses from scripture and, and words that have been said in scripture, but he says something like that, that it's in a whole new way. He's describing what's said in scripture or experiencing it in, in a whole new way. So it's like a, something that we might have heard and had a sense of what that meant, but then he flips it and says it's, it's like, re look at these words. Yes. And this, I think Richard does this nice thing, what do we do with the Bible and contemplative mm-hmm. scripture? In the same way we would take John of the Cross, for example, or look at Guigo. Uh, uh, if you would underline every scripture code in red, and in yellow, everything where they're commenting on scripture, fan through it, it's like scripture commentary. But in a certain way, see, in a certain way. So here's how I put it poetically for me. It, as, as the gospel. The, to, to hear the words of Jesus in contemplative stillness is to know that everything Jesus says is like falling off a cliff. Mm. Namely, everything he says, you'll never, 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 never get to the end of it because it has no end. It's, it's abyss-like. It's abyss-like. Furthermore, when you sit in its abyss-like nature, like fear not, I'm with you always, and it's into the descent of what's, what's where does that come from? See, see? Then you realize this abyss-like depth of God, Abba, is welling up and giving itself to you. In the very moment, you're touched by it. Mm. And that's the mystical sense of Scripture. Yes. Likewise, the inverse is true, that everything Jesus says is like a sheer wall of granite. It's impenetrable when we try to approach it with the ego, with logic. With ex- it isn't that they're not explanations. You can look at texts. That's important. And study the text and the origin of the text and all that. But, but there's a certain way in which that spills over into a kind of a prayerful attentiveness of logos, of the Word of God. And that's true of all these Mystics, they always start with the text. See, Teresa is um, created by God in the image and likeness of God. So for her, the soul is the divinity of ourself. It's the God-given nature of God creating us in the image and likeness of God. Then the mansions are degrees of realization of that. And so each mystic, they, Eckhart has a lot of this. Every sermon of Eckhart, we'll see when, later when we do Eckhart, it always starts with a scripture quote. But it's mm-hmm. scripture in this depth resonant sense where it goes deeper, deeper, deeper. And, I, and another analogy I use is that people in a lifetime who deeply love each other, every time they say, I love you to each other, see, it's like falling off a cliff. 
something because it's a deeper, deeper, deeper expression. It's not redundant. See, it's a deeper expression of a love which, in the very act of saying it, wells up and gives itself to them again. Mm-hmm. So there's this mantra-like quality to words, which is the words of the poet also have this quality to them. Yes. Yeah. It really opens up scripture in a new way. And I think for many people that have spent a lot of time in church, it can become rote, like something I know yeah, or exactly. something. And so um, Guigo gives us this opportunity to visit words in this depth dimension. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, yeah. Ch- talk- uh, 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 Chesterton says uh, one of his great lines. He said, "A person." He said, "We're bored to death by a story repeated over and over, which we've never heard." See? Mm. <laughs> and so it's like rote. Like I, I know this by heart, but we yeah. know it, but we don't. <laughs> you know? and, and and you know it the moment it gets to you. See, mm-hmm. see? and then you know it. See, it's it's the word that gets through as a logos and. Touches. And that's what, is that what Grigo is trying to say? It, like it the, is. You, you, you'll experience this in a whole new way. It, like it comes, it comes from within rather than externally. Like something comes from within in the word or the scripture. That's that exactly that, right. Yeah. And that's why he's encouraging you to see we're back to the latter again. We're back to Lexio. The longer you sit with the Lexio, it's, uh, it's endlessly evocative. Mm-hmm. It, you sit with it. And the image I use visually, I live here at the ocean. And I've been sitting here like for 30 years almost now. And uh, I don't get up in the morning and go out, look out and say, same old ocean. It's boring. <laughs> boring. It's, it's, it's endlessly evocative. Yeah. Mm. It's endlessly evocative. And so there's visual and auditory modalities. And that's why everything we see Jesus do for people are revelations of what Jesus is doing for us. And then we realize in seeing it, it's what Jesus is doing for us now. So, yeah. And that's where it starts to become more and more contemplative. Mm-hmm. And that's where it becomes more and more uh, translucent to the mystical. Because you're right at the brink of unsayable realizations, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Jim, uh, just coming back to the way Guigo uses these words that might be very familiar to people from scripture but is inviting us to imagine them differently than welling up in this experience of oneness um he uses words like he restores the weary soul he slakes its thirst he feeds its hunger so they're they're sensory words but you're telling us it's not at the sensory level that we're going to understand them. Or let's say it's a sensory level in which the body is the sacrament of the realization. Mm. You know, there's this kind of yoga-like quality of uh, a bodily realization. So Mm. so thirst, this is why I say in another, I forget where I said this at, that someone out alone in the desert dying of thirst, writing the word water over and over in the sand is onto a great idea. (laughs) <laughs> but when you're dying of thirst, it's just nothing like a drink of water, really. <laughs> and so, really, we're, the heart longs to find in words reverberations that are beyond explanations of words like this. Mm-hmm. And so, with thirst, see, I have more than the dear longs for running streams, my thirst for you, O God. So, it's a God-given thirst for God, which is an echo of God freely chooses to thirst for us. Mm. And so thirst then is a somatic expression of the longing as a mm. thirst. And then same with food, a kind of a Eucharistic connotation of mana or food. So hunger is, is ultimately speaking a hunger for God, which is God freely, ch- freely chosen hunger for us. That's really helpful. So these words are trying to articulate this longing and but this longing for something infinite so it's it's unexplainable hard to explain in the finite but these words sensory words start pointing to it imagine yeah, yeah. The, being incredibly thirsty incredibly hungry and but it's it's going to be it's going to be a deeper longing than that it's going to be even more than that and by the way uh, this is the spiritual insight of asceticism or denial. So, for example, in the lantern, whenever we would, you would do it, to fast see, means to abstain from food at one level, 
to evoke a hunger. So the hunger is a sacramental actualization of the hunger for God. See? To go without water, like the Muslims, you know, um, uh, this idea of of, uh, of fasting, Ramadan, see? Mm-hmm. of no no uh, from sun up to sundown, no water, no food, no sexual activity, and so on. And what it's really to do is to heighten this deep longing for God, see, that comes. And that's really the ascesis. That's really the the, the logic of refraining at one level to actualize and fulfill a deeper level, like a thirst that's an opening to a deeper thirst. And then once we taste that, then every time we drink water, we realize it's the grace of God. See, it's the flowing immediacy of God present in the gift of water, see, present in the gift of light, present in it. So it comes full circle that way, I think. The spirituality of sensuality, see, the, the like that, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's really helpful because you talk about how we can't experience what's happening to us in ego consciousness. Like right, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. We, can't, we can't know it in ego consciousness, but the way it washes back over us. So I love that example of now when I drink water, it might have a different I might have a different experience, and that's I might be able to connect that to this this union with God or this deeper sense of God's presence. That's why. That's why I say too. I know. I think that. See, once. See, once I see. See, he said it makes us forget all earthly things. He mm-hmm. says, and um, and I say, especially for us, it doesn't mean. Because we're drawn to the mystical, we forget our spouse or our children or our work or our friends. You know, I'm, I'm so holy. None of you mean anything to me anymore. Don't bother me. Uh, but it's compared, the fulfillment I find in your presence in my life, compared to the unexplainable fullness of the union, is as nothing compared. Mm-hmm. But once I see its poverty or its nothingness compared to the infinite presence of God, the more I can see the presence of God shining through it and its nothingness without God. And so my gratitude for the spouse or the child or a glass of water or a slant of light across the floor or just listening to our own breathing or talking to anybody, like Francis kissing the leper, you know, brother, son, and sister moon, it, it, it just generalizes the divinity of everything by seeing it's transparent to God shining through it in its nothingness without God. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, and it's tricky, isn't it? Because um, in the desire and the longing for God, um, there's this patience of waiting for God to do the work. And uh, yeah. so I might want to drink my water now and just, recognize the infinite nature of God and feel a oneness with God in my, but but I, I need to be patient for God to bring that forward in me. Is that, is that right? It is. I also think there's something else that's important also in, in daily life. The God is also the author and the infinite ground of the ordinary patterns of human existence. See? So we're not intended to get all wound up, do I sip water or not? You know, I mean, like, she was, do I eat a cookie? I better lie off the cookie. I won't be a mystic. I mean, you, you do these convoluted things in your head. Yeah. Because the yes. natural desire to drink, God's the infinity of the natural desire to drink water when you want water. It's like yeah. the holiness of the ordinary intimately realized. Mm-hmm. It's just that in certain ways, you can freely choose what meditation is. You see, you, you, you close the door. And you turn off the TV, you shut off your phone, like I forgot to do. You just said, because there's no agenda but love. Yeah. And then in giving ourselves over to no agenda but love in these, to the latter, then we start to see that love washes over us and is present unexplainably in the presence of everything. Mm. See? Like ultimately speaking, just one thing is happening, this infinite love and a self-donating act. Is pouring itself out as me standing up and sitting down, breathing in and breathing out, laughing and crying. And that's what these are really trying to bring us to this habituated state, see, of this presence, yes. yeah. And also, it's important too, we'll see, 
this would be important for, we'll see later too, is that so that even the absence of this presence when it goes away, we know that God's, the inf God's infinitely present in the perceived absence of the presence of God because there's no such thing as the absence of God. So even the absence is an invitation for us to trust in God, to wait and be open, to trust its rhythms like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your session when you talked about the way this might wash back over into ego consciousness, you mentioned uh, the philosopher Martin Buber yeah. and his teaching on I, it, I, thou. And I, I'd love to just spend a little bit of time understanding that teaching. Yes. <clears throat> Buber's uh, really affected me in the monastery when I read Buber. I thought, oh, it's kind of a, this Jewish mystic and philosopher. Same with Abraham Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who came to Gethsemane to visit Merton. Mm. And uh, so Buber starts out by saying there are two realms of consciousness, I, it, and I, thou. Mm -hmm. The world of I, it is the world of, of, of objective reality. It's the world of science. It's the order of the factual it's real. He says the thou is the one who fills the entire horizon of your being. See? Mm. The thou, see, like the intimate immediacy of the boundarylessness of it. So the thou can be present in deep love where another person becomes thou unto us. That is, who you know them to be in your love for them it's what you see in them that transcends the external factual realities of who they are. You see their innermost preciousness shining out at you. See? And then when they return the favor and let you know that you're thou to them, you got something going. See? <laughs> and really then that's, that's what the church means by marriage is a sacrament. See, that's, and that's why these mystics are nuptial mystics. Like we go, John of the Cross, Teresa, because I see that then as a sacrament, you know, of this union of the thou. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really saying here then is there is the world of I, it, and it's real like, I gotta call Mirabai later and have lunch, it's real. <laughs> but here's the other thing that starts to happen, we start to realize, is that even that which is it, you know, my teacup, I, Insofar as my awakening goes deeper and deeper, I see the thou quality of the teacup. And by the way, I would say this. This is what the artist paints. If we use this kind of imagery, the artist oh, sees yeah. the thou in the flower or the wow. woman in the window pouring cream out of a pitcher. See? And they share the thou quality. So when we sit with it, we see it too. See? And music does this too. You hear, you know what I'm trying to say? Poets do this. And so we're trying to come to this habituated state of the thou quality, which is the divinity of everything. And then to see the thou quality of ourself and all of our brokenness and all of our, that we are thou unto God. See, we are, the, we are God's beloved, the thou. And all the more, this is the mystery of salvation, the cross, all the more precious as we're infinitely precious in our brokenness, not in spite of it. See, that's why accepting our brokenness is our claim on God's love for us. See, because God falls in love with us to become identified with us as precious in the brokenness, in death, in sorrow, in our wayward ways. And we see kind of, see, otherwise we get into this thing like, am I holy yet? Am I holy yet? How am I doing? It's enough to make God sit on a stone somewhere and weep. See, <laughs> it's like, it, it, not wholly yet, so you're already unbearably, unexplainably, and boundlessly holy in your brokenness, but you need to see that. And then use the seeing of Paul says, if we're boundlessly loved, does that mean we should go out and sin all the more? Like a free check. He said, God forbid. See? So we always do our best, the moral imperative not to actively choose suffering to ourselves or others or animals or the earth. Grounded in a peace is not dependent on our ability to live up to it because it's the peace of God on which everything depends. And I think this is mystical morality. You know what I mean? This yeah. is the mystical dimensions of the moral order. Mm, that's, yeah. that's really helpful to connect the dots that way. Exactly, yeah. So, Jim, just I really thought I 
had a moment when you're talking about Buba then, a realisation of something, that this sense of coming into the I-thou relationship isn't um, working on myself <laughs> to become worthy of the thou, but it's, it's realising I am I-thou. <laughs> And it's like it's like this inner realization, this homecoming to myself. You use the word homecoming, yeah. that, uh, but it, but that that God might weld that up in me to realize how loved and how thou I am to God, so I can that, share it. that with myself and others. Yeah, that's it. Let me put it another way. I want to start at the beginning of the ladder again. Really, mm-hmm. um, let's say our ego is our self-reflective daily bodily self and time and space relationship with others and the earth. You know, you are who you are, I, there's that. So God wants us to have a healthy ego because when our ego isn't healthy, we suffer and those with us suffer. So if we're married, our spouse says, I sure wish you'd work on your ego because your issues are spilling over onto me. It doesn't feel yes. very good. So there yes. is a moral imperative of doing our homework on internalized traumas, abandonments, and hurts, and we have to do love's work that way. Then as we do that work, there's another phase where it's illumined by faith. See, where God meets us in our brokenness, loves us in it, but to heighten the imperative of responding to love, but in a piece that isn't dependent on our ability to live up to it, See, but dependent only on the mercy that loves us so and our inabilities to live up to it. So we're endlessly faithful, the constancy of effort, but it's an effort that opens out upon, we're sustained in it as we are. See? And then this eventually, this, see, in contemplation, it becomes mystical. See, it's, mm-hmm. it's the boundarylessness of the process itself. Like it's the divinity of the intimate immediacy of the unfolding of things, intimately realized like that. It's a kind of a habit in the soul. You know, So far, we've only gotten to the point where it's a moment. Notice we're just talking about a moment now. Yes. So, and then in the final talk, I'm going to talk about the path. Mm-hmm. What is a lifelong process where it becomes habituated? Contemplative mm-hmm. character transformation. See, that's what we're, Wonderful. That's what we're after well, here, I think. Yes. Well, then this sounds like a good place to come to an end. I, um, I did want to just end with, uh, you shared something very personal and beautiful about connecting to longing um, through you used your own life as an example about losing Maureen. Yes. But how when we come, up, come upon this depth of God, it doesn't heal our pain and longings in, in, in a way. That's right. It, it, it deepens them. It, that's what it sounded like. That's right. And, and this is where, for me, spirituality and therapy touch each other also right here. So let's say in the beginning, uh, when she first died last March, I mean, it really, the very fact we were so amazingly one with each other made her death so unbearably unbearable. Mm. You know, it was just the most painful thing I ever experienced, really. But then as I sat with it, as I sat with it, and I I realized it wasn't the deepest truth where I would cry out, you know, I loved you so much. But then it switched inside of me, I love you so much. The fact you're Mm. dead doesn't lessen how much I love you. And I also believed in our whole life of faith together that she still loves me. And then I begin to sense her presence and her absence. You know, I sense, uh, you know what I mean? It's like that. Yes, yes. And I think that's this, that that when when the beloved dies and they pass through the veil of death, in our love for them, they carried part of us with them, see? Mm. And they're with us, this idea where the dead don't go anywhere. Mm. And so birth and death, See, the visible and the invisible, see, the deathless nature. Or again, Gabriel Marcel, to love someone is to see in them that which is too beautiful to die. See? Yeah. And so we really do die, but we don't. See? Yeah. And that, the mystical consciousness of that is freedom from the fear of death in the midst of death. See? You know what I mean? It's freedom from suffering, freedom from the tyranny of suffering in the midst of suffering. Mm. And I think that's what gives us the courage to then be present to suffering, to draw close to it and touch it with love so that it might dissolve in love, to do love's work and pace ourselves because we're just a human being. Mm. And so all this kind of rains down into and it comes home 
to the integrity of an habituated state of infinite tenderness and sensitivity as echoes and embodies God's infinite tenderness towards us. And I think this is where these mystics are guiding us. Yeah. You know, this is the path we're on, I think. And it's very responsive to what's happening in our own lives. It, it, it really is. Both responsive where we, we notice when fear arises, reactivity arises, like, like Thich Nhat Hanh, hello, habit energies, like there it is again. But then you engage in a loving response to the still-wounded part. There's that in us that sees this, and there's that in us that doesn't see it yet. And when it arises, instead of uh, trying to push it away or being ashamed of it, we're to be lovingly present to the part that doesn't see it yet. Because it's very, it's very myopic in a way. It doesn't, and we're to lovingly tend to the part that does. And by redoing that over and over again, that's where this incarnate love keeps permeating things like that. And, uh, and I think the mystical part is uh, incarnate infinity. See, it's where it's the preview of coming attractions. That's the celestial glory uh, and the light of glory shines with, in a very obscure, hidden, but very real way in our heart. Mm. And then we try to, and we share it with others by being ourselves, I guess. Well, thank you so much for the way you share it with us, Jim, in a very real way. Thank you. And uh, I've appreciated this dialogue and look forward to uh, the next one. And in the meantime, we'll just encourage people to be loving and kind and compassionate to themselves right. as we all struggle along this path. That's right, exactly. Thank you, Jim. Sure, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.